Before the show begins today, I feel I should offer an apology. Last week, after a series of distinguished actors released a video urging Republican electors to vote against Donald Trump, I made some remarks that may have seemed disrespectful to celebrity Americans. Some things I said may have given the impression that I see celebrity Americans as spoiled, self-important, overpaid, out of control, spoiled, overrated, self-important, and spoiled. In a moment of peak, I might have suggested that celebrities are merely clownish buffoons who have the ability to pretend to be characters more interesting, intelligent, brave, and decent than themselves, and who have therefore begun to believe that they are the interesting, intelligent, brave, or decent characters they sometimes pretend to be, instead of people who are shallow, uninteresting, dysfunctional, spoiled, self-important, and spoiled. At some point, I may have recklessly remarked that a lifetime of make-believe, divorce, and rehab hasn't really equipped these fine, upstanding celebrity Americans with the wisdom to comment on anything more important than what outfit they should wear to the next awards program, where they'll pat each other on the back for pretending to be people better than themselves. I am deeply sorry if anyone got the impression that that's what I was saying when I said that, or if anyone misconstrued my words to mean what I clearly intended them to mean. The fact is... For too many years, celebrity Americans have faced real prejudice in this country. Barred from living among the rest of us, they've been forced to take up residence in restricted neighborhoods like Beverly Hills and Malibu, where they eat and work far away from ordinary people. These conditions have forced celebrity Americans to congregate exclusively with one another so that their opinions develop in a social echo chamber that would distort the outlooks even of people with intelligence and grace let alone people who only pretend to have intelligence and grace when they're being overpaid to say intelligent, graceful things that a writer wrote for them. Let's be honest. When a man like Martin Sheen tells electors that he'll respect them if they betray their trust in order to subvert an election and stall the peaceful transition of power, well, who am I to question whether anyone would actually want his respect or would rather have a used piece of toilet paper put in a frame so he could hang it next to his collection of shrunken heads? I mean, this is Martin Sheen we're talking about. He played the wisest president ever on the West Wing on TV. It's only in real life that he's Charlie Sheen's father. I say any man who participated in the creation of Charlie Sheen is a man I want telling me how to run this nation on TV in the West Wing. Obviously, not in real life. So, in conclusion, let me just say to any celebrity American who may have been offended by what I said, you're talented, you're beautiful, and everyone loves you. Now shut up and dance. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Merry Christmas! Gosh, we, oh we, wow! Uh, hey, we've got something. What, who's the girl and who's the babe? And the, uh, that's Nicki Minaj dancing. Nicki. <laughs> <That's, laughs> yes, that, I, I, I actually did ask for that for Christmas. That is uh, that kind of a coincidence. <laughs> and now, just to show you, as a special for those of you who are watching on the Daily Wire website, or if you subscribe, or if you don't subscribe and you're outside in the cold darkness of Facebook or YouTube, we have actually put. 
dancers in with my opening now. We have a, the dance version. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who those kids are, but obviously damaged for life, right? Yeah. <laughs> exposed, exposed to something they shouldn't have seen. All right, it's the last week before Christmas, the last week before a long, long week, the ending of the... I mean, this week we lost Zsa, Zsa Gabor. Somebody else died. Oh, the guy who, did, who invented the Heimlich maneuver died. Really? Yeah. Is that his name? <laughs> it was something I'm like, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, you know, he saved many lives, but now he's gone. And, uh, he choked to death. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> All right, but Christmas is a coming. If you have not got my memoir, The Great Good Thing: A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, you can get it now on Amazon. Read the reviews; you'll want it. And I, I'm, I'm, what's that? Did you get three copies? God bless you. So that's, you know, three more and we'll have sold six copies. No. <laughs> Go on and take a look. I think you'll like it. And while you're there, you can still get my novel, Werewolf Cop, for a buck ninety-nine on Kindle. And it actually is a better novel than the title. I wish they had talked me out of that title, but they didn't. <laughs> All right. And today, we're going to have Oscar-nominated cultural correspondent Michael Knowles reviewing the weekend's big movie release. So you'll want to be here for that. But of course, that comes after Facebook and YouTube go off the air, so you have to come over to The Daily Wire to hear it, and you can subscribe to The Daily Wire for a lousy eight bucks a month, and then you can be in the mailbag. This is the last mailbag, so you want to get your end of the year in questions now. All right, the Electoral College does vote today across the country, and all those people who are afraid of Donald Trump's America are phoning in death threats to electors because they don't want to live, live in the evil Donald Trump America, so they're creating their own evil America. You know, it's like where you can threaten these guys. Everybody's saying this is nothing going to. You know, it's, it is. It is still 2016, so anything can happen. Like they, these guys may elect like Donald Duck at this point. Who knows what they'll do? But it looks like it, it, all the insiders are saying it's not going to happen. Um, meanwhile, meanwhile, Obama is examining, Obama and the media and Michelle Obama are examining the legacy of Barack Obama. And I have to say, for high comedy, there is, has been nothing like it. I have never seen, I've never seen the uh, just unctuous outpouring of idolizing praise. I mean, you, you think back and you remember, this is a president that Brian Williams, a, a make-believe journalist, bowed to. This is a guy that they bowed to. This is the New York Times when he finally got an interview with the, the president said, what, what delights you? What delights you about the presidency? That was his hard question. When anybody ever asked a question of this guy, they would a hard question, a real question, they would say, isn't that disrespectful? You know? and, then they, and now they're saying, oh, it's a scandal-free administration. So nobody likes this. Nobody has loved this administration more than Barack Obama. I mean, he, he, he has got, he's a smart man. He is not a stupid man. He has got to know in his heart that this is a busted you know, presidency because Donald Trump wouldn't have been elected if it hadn't been, right? You'd have, you know, after, after Ronald Reagan, there was no chance that Bush wasn't going to get elected because we wanted to keep that thing going. Everybody was happy. Everything was going well. Here's Obama in his final press conference telling everybody that the economy is great. As I was preparing to take office, the unemployment rate was on its way to 10 percent. Today it's at 4.6 percent, the lowest in nearly a decade. We've seen the longest streak of job growth on record, and wages have grown faster over the past few years than at any time in the past 40. 
When I came into office, 44 million people were uninsured. Today, we've covered more than 20 million of them. For the first time in our history, more than 90 percent of Americans are insured. In fact, yesterday was the biggest day ever for healthcare.gov. More than 670,000 Americans signed up to get covered, and more are signing up by the day. We've cut our dependence on foreign oil by more than half, doubled production of renewable energy, enacted the most sweeping reform since FDR to protect consumers and prevent a crisis on Wall Street from punishing Main Street ever again. None of these actions stifled growth, as critics predicted. Instead, the stock market has nearly tripled. Since I signed Obamacare into law, our businesses have added more than 15 million new jobs. And the economy is undoubtedly more durable than it was in the days when we relied on oil from unstable nations and banks took risky bets with your money. So all that is great in the country he's living in. Unfortunately, none of us can get in that country. You have to climb in his ear to get to that country and go up into his brain. You know, the thing is, everything he says there is almost everything he says is completely ridiculous. You know, he sa- he talks about uh, – he says growth is great because the stock market's going up. The stock market has nothing to do with growth. The stock market, there's cheap money. There's no interest on money. So people have nowhere to go to earn money but the stock market. So, of course, the stock market is skyrocketing. The minute interest rates start to go up, things could change very rapidly. But that's not growth. Take a look at the way growth has been. That little little nub over there, really it should be smaller because it's only in the last uh, few Year, last few months that growth has gone up. But that little nub over there that's smaller than all the other presidents before it, that's how much the economy has grown under Barack Obama. This has been one of the worst seasons of growth. And that's doubly bad because, remember, he came in during a crash. So things were going to get better. He came in during a massive crash. Things were going to get better. They should have gotten better. You know, even a dead cat bounces, right? They should have gotten better hugely. Should have been bigly, bigly. You know, they, yeah, the, the thing should have skyrocketed. On top of which, take a look at the debt chart. Whoa, that's the debt under Barack Obama, that big, that gigantic line that looks like where, you know, what the World Trade Center used to be like before it was destroyed. That, that line is the debt line. He has just plunged us into debt, so nothing he's done has been paid for. The idea that he's bragging about Obamacare, this absolute jalopy of a, you know, breakdown jalopy of a, of a machine that nobody even knows, uh, you know, how it works or what it does, just in forces people to do all this stuff. Just amazing. Just amazing. And the most important point, the most important point is if the economy were going well, if the economy, you know, and, and the, the, the worst one is the unemployment rate, because the real unemployment rate is up around 10 percent. The unemployment rate of people who want jobs but don't have them or who want to work more is close to 10 percent. If the unemployment rate were really where they say it is, would people have shown up for Donald Trump? The way they did. I mean, come on, come on. That 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 is an unemployment election. Here, you know, in the New Republic, they had this roundtable of journalists. The New Republic is the left-wing magazine. They had this roundtable of journalists falling over each other to see who could praise Obama more and explain away his faults more. My favorite is this. Nell Painter says, I don't think it has anything to do with him except that he's a black man. The election of Trump was a gut-level response to what many Americans interpreted as an insult eight years ago and have been seething against ever since. They're all saying that. All these journalists are saying that. It's all about the fact that he he's black and this is the rebellion. Same people who voted for Trump voted for Obama. It's the same people. They, uh, they couldn't suddenly have become racist overnight, but that's their explanation. Nobody, because they're all 
in the, on the same planet. They're all on planet Obama. They don't know what happened. All right, so here's Obama on his foreign policy, which is a true laugh. In foreign policy, when I came into office, we were in the midst of two wars. Now nearly 180,000 troops are down to 15,000. Bin Laden, rather than being at large, uh, has been taken off the battlefield along with thousands of other terrorists. Over the past eight years, no foreign terrorist organization has sex, uh, successfully executed an attack on our homeland that was directed from overseas. Through diplomacy, we've ensured that Iran cannot obtain a nuclear weapon without going to war with Iran. We opened up a new chapter with the people of Cuba. And we brought nearly 200 nations together around a climate agreement that could very well save this planet for our kids. And almost every country on Earth sees America as stronger and more respected today than they did eight years ago. In other words, by so many measures, our country is stronger and more prosperous than it was when we started. It's a situation that I'm proud to leave for my successor. Imagination is funny. It makes a cloudy day sunny. <laughs> what is he talking about? America is more respected. I'll tell you one person who doesn't respect America very much, and that's Vladimir Putin, who sat around and listened to Barack Obama making threats about what he was going to do and how he was, you know, the red line that he was going to draw. And then, you know, the reason Aleppo, you know, Aleppo, I keep going back to Aleppo because people are being murdered, children are being murdered. It's just this awful, awful, depressing situation. But it's really, it's a symbol of his malfeasance. It's a symbol of his foreign policy. It, this has happened throughout the Middle East and throughout the world. And you can say, well, what, what are we supposed to do, fight in every war? You don't have to fight in every war. You just have to make your words matter. I mean, you think Vladimir Putin is sitting around worrying about what hashtag Michelle Obama is going to hold up next as he goes marching through the Middle East, making friends with the, the bad guys and killing off the good guys? You know, Vladimir Putin could care less if there's a hashtag, stop it, you rotten Putin. You know, it's like he doesn't care. And all the stuff that Obama said, you know, Krauthammer had a re really good description. Let's listen to Krauthammer describe how Aleppo got to be Aleppo. Obama imagines that the Obama deal is his legacy. It is not. Aleppo is his legacy. History will remember this as kind of a symbolism of the whole policy of retreat and the inevitable outcome. It's not as if this civil war was going to go one way or the other because of what the United States did. The, the, the civil war was essentially in some kind of equilibrium a year and a half ago when the Russians decided that their side, Assad, was losing. The, the, the rebels were actually on the advance in Aleppo and elsewhere. He stepped in to rescue Assad, but then he saw there was no response on the part of the West, no penalties whatsoever, even economic, coming from the United States, and he decided to drive the advantage. And we are reduced now to getting speeches from our UN spokesman pleading, saying to the Iranians and the Russians and to Assad, have you no shame, have you no pity? The answer is obvious. They have none. The only thing that could have stopped this ultimately would have been some kind of deterrent from the United States, warning from the United States to keep the Russians out. We didn't, and now we have what we have. 
Okay, Oscar-nominated cultural correspondent Michael Knowles is coming on to discuss the big movie release of the weekend, but we have to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Come over to thedailywire.com. You can listen to the rest of the show or watch it if you would part with just a little bit of money for the great privilege of being part of our mailbag. See you there. You know, what we're really seeing is the fact that one of the things that right-wingers complain about the left is we complain that everything they do is based on emotion, and it's all the emotions of the elite. It's always the emotions of the elite. It's always like what, what white people in the middle of Manhattan think. Feel. Feel is good. You know, so they, they just, and they feel this presidency has been wonderful for them, and I'm sure it is, because they've got money in the stock market, so that's going well, you know, and every, you know, these guys in the Rust Belt who are blaming the Obama administration, they're right. They are right. They, they did ruin the manufacturing base in this country, and they did it on purpose. But, you know, all these guys, here, here is Michelle Obama discussing the true legacy of Barack. What, we, what we're missing now is, is, you know, it's all, she's telling Oprah, it's all about the hope. Have we got that? Your husband's administration, everything, the election, was all about hope. Do you think that this administration achieved that? Yes. I do. Because we feel the difference now. Yeah. See, now we're feeling what not having hope feels like. <laughs> you know? <laughs> hope is necessary. It's, it's a necessary concept. <laughs> and Barack didn't just talk about hope because he thought it was just a nice slogan to get votes. I mean, he and I and so many believe that if you, what else do you have if you don't have hope? <laughs> it's all about the emotions, you know, like the city can be on fire, the Middle East can be going up in flames, the economy can be dying, you don't have a job, but at least you have hope, you know, that's, that's the important thing. And, and also, I, I want you to listen to the way she spoke, you know, in The Nation, uh, Idel Rodriguez, the left-wing publication The Nation, wrote about the era of Obama. And he says, the last eight years have been an era of what I had thought future generations might look back on as an important political correction. For all that didn't happen in retrospect, the era began with redemptive energy. There was hope. There was change. There was a rousing <laughs> sense of public spirit and faith in public institutions. It had been a long slog under the Bush, the youngers. But, but just listen to the, There was hope. You know, listen to the way he writes the sentences. There was hope. There was change. No, there wasn't. You know, I mean, who among him, among his friends, yeah, yeah. in his office, when, when Michelle Obama says there's no hope, she's talking about for her, in her world, there's no hope. In our world, suddenly there really is. I mean, here's Trump on the same subject, on hope. Michelle Obama said yesterday that there's no hope. But I assume she was talking about the past, not the future, because I'm telling you, we have tremendous hope, and we have tremendous promise and tremendous potential. We are going to be so successful as a country again. We are going to be amazing. And I, I actually think she made that statement not meaning it the way it came out. I really do, because I met with President Obama, and Michelle Obama in the White House, my wife was there. She could not have been nicer. I honestly believe she meant that statement in a different way than it came out. Because I believe, I believe there is tremendous hope and beyond hope. 
We have such potential. See, the, the thing is, all those people there, Michelle, they don't count. They don't count to these people. They do not exist. These people do not. They didn't know they existed. First of all, that's why they're so shocked Trump got elected, because they didn't know they existed. And they just they just see them as these retrograde, reactive racists, basically. It's all about race. And, and then they didn't vote for Hillary because she's female. You know, that's the other thing. It's all and that in that roundtable that goes on and on. These females and all this stuff. I just want to end this just to show you one thing, the last thing that Michelle Obama said, that I know I know these people in their bubble here think this guy, I mean, Andrew Sullivan had this line about what a graceful, wonderful man this is. Let me see. Oh, people will see in the future, says Andrew Sullivan, people will see the sheer caliber of this man, the grace and poise with which he conducted himself in unbelievably difficult circumstances, the way he withstood abuse and disrespect with extraordinary calm and goodwill. Think back to George W. Bush being called Hitler every day in the New York Times and without ever saying a nasty word. Barack Obama was nasty all the time. But listen to the underlying way that they think of us. Here's Michelle Obama giving giving the reason that Obama was really such a good president no matter what he actually did. Our children respond to crises the way they see us respond. You know, it's like the toddler that bumps his head on the table and they look up at you to figure out whether it hurts. And if you're like, oh my God, they're crying. But if you're like, you know what, babe, it's okay. It's okay. And I feel that way about the nation. I feel that Barack has been that for the nation in ways that people um, will come to appreciate. Mm. Having a grown-up in the White House who can say to you in times of crisis and turmoil, hey, it's going to be okay. Let's remember the good things that we have. Let's look at the future. Let's look at all the things that we're building. All of this is important for our kids to stay focused and to feel uh, like their work isn't in vain, that their lives aren't in vain. What do we do if we don't have hope, Oprah? (laughs) So you got that, right? You are a toddler who has fallen down and you look to the great father, Barack Obama, and he's so calm and he's so cool that he tells you how you feel. He's destroyed the manufacturing base. He's dipped the country deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. He's let the the, uh, rest of the world go out of control, become just an absolute uh, array of mass murders and, and wars. And when you look up at it, but when you look up at him and think, oh, my God, everything's crappy under this administration, he says, no, you're all right. And that makes you feel so much better. I mean, it's all about the emotion. If the if the left looks back on Barack Obama with their emotions, which is all they do, they're going to love this presidency forever. But the facts are going to come out and the truth is going to come out and things are going to get better, I believe, very, very rapidly if somebody takes some sensible economic uh, steps. And it's just not going to be supportable. We cannot live in our emotions. We have to live at least a little bit. We have to visit the real world from time to time, but apparently not if you're the Obama family and his followers. All right, let's go on to uh, our Oscar-nominated cultural correspondent, Michael Knowles, is here in, in Christmas. There he is. Hey. <laughs> I gotta, you know, our, our technology gets better and better the closer you get. Uh, <laughs> so so you were at, we sent you out into the dangerous world of the, of the culture to cover the big, important movie release of the weekend. That's right. I think we in the film watching community have all been waiting for this for a very long time. Um, you know, long ago and far away, 
nefarious forces colluded to tyrannize all of the known universe. And of course, the DVD release of Southside with You was Co- covers uh, that that co- yeah, covered yeah, perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Man, I, I have been waiting and waiting for this because there was no chance that I would see it in the theaters, and I needed a coaster for my coffee cup. So I think the DVD release will be a big thing for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I I actually I can't believe this is the first time the Clavenless Weekend has ever really impacted me personally. Because you, wa- you actually watch these movies. <laughs> yeah. uh, these movies. I had to watch both of these movies. I watched another Barack Obama movie. I'll, I'll tell you more about that okay. later. I watched both of these movies on my red-eye flight last night. Now, already I'm feeling a little tired and nothing like a two-hour long bad Hugh Grant movie <laughs> about the Obamas can really make you uh, I, aware I, I of your we, misery. We, we salute his dedication. <laughs> hey, we, <That's> right. <laughs> you actually watched Southside with you from the beginning to the end. I watched the entire movie and I didn't even pause because I knew if I paused, I would find something. I would jump out of the airplane. I would do anything to get out of there. I just, you know, when I told you to watch it, I just wanted you to skip ahead to the sex scenes, you know, <laughs> where he <laughs> screws, where he screws the entire country. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Go, I, I want to hear about this. I really do. Well, yeah. do you know where I think the filmmakers went wrong? The oh. filmmakers of the movie about oh, the Obama's first date? This is, Obama, this is uh, Barack Obama's first date with Michelle. That's, That's right. The, okay. the place where I think the filmmakers went wrong is they made a movie about the Obama's first date. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first place. Okay. That was the first mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, and, you, if you look on Rotten Tomatoes, I think this tells you the whole story. The, nobody has seen it. It has very few reviews, period. And you have to assume that anyone who would go to sit, yes. even with this preening, ridiculous title, like you know, like a Hugh Grant movie about a failed president and his basically unlikable wife who said she's never been proud of her country. Yeah. You have to assume they're probably fans of the president. It had a 78% audience rating. Wow. It okay. had a 91% yes, critics of course, rating. Yes, of course. Yeah. The, the top critics rating was 98%. 98%. That's right. So one of the, so Gone with the Wind, Star Wars, <laughs> Godfather, Southside with you. That's right. Citizen <laughs> Kane, Southside with you. Really? 98%? Who, do you know who it was who said the 98%? I, mean, I looked. There was uh, you know, a dozen some, reviewers okay, or something yeah. like that. The top critics rated on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Unbelievable. Yeah. The... The no, the really crazy thing, you know Hollywood pretty well. Yeah. This town, it's very hard to make a movie in this town. <laughs> and there was a room full of film executives sitting there, and they heard the pitch, and they said, yeah, what we're going to do is follow this, this ter- historically bad president, and we're going to focus on his taking out his wife for the entire movie. It is one day. <laughs> and there is, I, I'm not going to worry about any spoilers because yeah, no, I, go I ahead. Bet <laughs> this sweater that nobody in your audience watches this movie. The, the climax of the movie, the big moment where we're supposed to see Michelle Obama's eyes open up and she's resisting him the whole time and then she decides she's going to go on a date with him. And when we see that he's got the capacity for leadership is when he goes to a community organizing meeting. <laughs> and a lot of people complain. And then he gets up and he complains with slightly higher vocabulary. Yeah. And then they complain more and they all applaud and we see that he's going to be the president. Oh, my goodness. That's, uh, that's, that's the dramatic uh, hinge of the movie. That's the dramatic hinge because he hadn't accomplished anything. And, and basically oh, oh, still hasn't. Which is still true. Yeah. yeah what, so what's the other film? What? So there's another film. It's on Netflix. This is the the minor sto- the le- lesser story of the, the, this weekend after the DVD <laughs> yeah. release of Southside with You. Yeah. And that is this movie called Barry, which Barry. explores okay. his college years. And 
Imagine your freshman year bull session drinking beer and smoking pot and thinking you know a lot about philosophy and gabbing about politics. And then make it an even more unlikable guy. And then watch it for two hours. The, uh, it, it would be an interesting idea because we knew nothing about this guy. He was never vetted. We don't really know about his younger years. Yeah. But we still don't. They don't tell us anything. Yeah. All we know is at the beginning, a classmate is introduced. He's the young Republican Uh-oh. Reagan supporter. Uh-oh. And he's considered very obnoxious, possibly a little racist, certainly very, very dumb. The trouble with this movie, with both of these movies, actually, is the, is the character of Barack Obama. And I don't even say that in a partisan way. I mean the character that they've made, both in these films and that the mainstream media has created, is not a character. He's not a human. He's not he's, a real person. Yeah. He's not a real person. He's perfect. And the only time a perfect character works in a story is when you crucify him at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's that's the only time you can carry that off. Yeah. So there's nothing. I mean, it's like you hear Michelle talking about now and all these people trying to construct his legacy. First of all, a crease in a pant leg or something to that effect <laughs> yeah. probably is not good evidence of perfection. But even if that were the case, it's very very, it's even more boring than it needs to be to watch a a perfect man not have any hardship. Well, the, the second movie, Barry, yeah. the central hardship is Barack Obama's father was black and his mother was white. Uh-oh, uh-oh, that's tough. That it's is tough, unprecedented yeah. hardship. Yeah. And, you know, there is one sort of interesting note about Barry, which is, you know, the most boring thing in the world is to listen to somebody tell you about his dreams. Yeah. So... That's basically what Barack Obama is doing in this movie, you know? and and it's what he did in his first autobiography. It's dreams for my father, and it, oh, yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, as, I I think it's now clear that you were nominated for the Oscar for sheer courage in in, uh, in the field. I think. But, well, I, I'm I'm glad. I you know I'm I'm certainly. Did you get to see Star Wars? I, I did actually get to see Star Wars as well, yeah. which by comparison I, was better. Yeah, I, it, it was better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Right? That's right. Yeah, and you know, it was all. It's also about uh, Star Wars: The Saga. Is about a young man who has a kind of rough relationship with his father, and uh, <laughs> so there right. are there yeah. are parallels there. But um, it's, it's almost the same. It's almost the same story. <laughs> all right, our Oscar-nominated cultural correspondent Michael Knowles covering the big Barry uh, movie, the double feature release of the two, double feature. two Baraka. I know going you won't to the wanna... south side of the force. <laughs> <laughs> I know you won't want to miss them. You know what? I think we were going to talk about. Uh, Rogue One today, but I think we'll hold off and talk about it tomorrow so we actually have a chance to talk about it. Uh, I think now we just have to have a moment of silence where we appreciate Michael Knowles' uh, courage and uh, in, in, in going out and watching those things on a plane, because you can't leave, you know? <laughs> you can't, you can't, like they, they stop you. It's like They have to wrestle you back from the door. All right, that's our show for today as we move closer and closer to the Clavenless Christmas, but I think we can have Christmas without without me, you know? It's like... Uh, uh, <laughs> It actually, I, I don't know how to break this to you, but Christmas actually isn't about me. It's speaking of, yeah, I know, speaking of which, I just thought this week we would hit on stuff I like, some of my favorite Christmas carols that aren't some of the main Christmas carols. Here is one that was written, I think, in the 18th century, and nobody knows who wrote the lyrics, but it's called uh, Jesus Christ the Apple Tree, and it's kind of a weird uh, story where the, the apple tree and Je- Jesus, the apple tree is used as a metaphor for Jesus, but clearly the apple tree is the apple tree of life from the Garden of Eden or some, or maybe the apple tree from the Song of Solomon. Uh, and the lyrics are the tree of life 
my soul hath seen, laden with fruit and always green. The trees of nature fruitless be, compared with Christ, the apple tree. His beauty doth all things excel, by faith I know, but ne'er can tell, the glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ, the apple tree. And here's the verse I love. For happiness I long have sought, and pleasure dearly I have bought. I missed of all, but now I see tis found in Christ, the apple tree. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We'll see you tomorrow.